Good morning, everybody. If you would take your copy of God's Word, turn to the epistle written by Jude, immediately before the book of Revelation. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the, the certainty of apostates, and the title was a part one and part two of that very um, thought process of the certainty of apostates. In Jude's epistle, as we heard when we began, he, he set out with the, the thought of teaching or writing about their common salvation, and immediately he felt led to go and speak about apostates, apostates within the church, the wolves in sheep's clothing we read about in other places. And past two weeks, we looked at understanding that apostates are those who have turned from the faith, sometimes wholesale and emphatically and speaking strongly against the faith. And those are much easier to identify because they're so clear in saying they're turned from that. But the ones that I believe Jude is speaking to here are the ones that are a little more subtle. He tells us these are the ones that have crept in unaware. The ones that don't show that or wear that on their sleeves. Those that may, may not verbalize their turn wholesale, but they are identified by what they are saying, what they are teaching, what they are doing, primarily by adding to or taking from the gospel, as we've read other places, what God says about that. Specifically, the concern here is a concern for teachers and leaders in the church context who are apostates. The past couple of weeks, we looked at verses four through seven, and we saw their certainty, that being the title of our messages, Number one, the certainty of their presence and the certainty that they will come and they are here and they have been for 2,000 years or actually they, you can go back further than that. There were Old Testament apostates as well. And then last week we looked at the certainty of their destruction that God says he will deal with them and he will deal with them justly and righteously as only he can. Their destruction. But he also told us last week, and we looked at that this isn't just reactionary, but he tells us that long beforehand they were marked out for this condemnation. Long beforehand. Picking up in verse 8 today, Jude shows us some of their characteristics. In so doing, it gives us a template for identifying false teachers and apostates within the context of the church. And that is important, and I know that these are verses that aren't often expanded on and expounded clearly and concisely, but I think it's we do so with grave error and with a real warning to allow false teaching to infiltrate the church, infiltrate families without standing firm and knowing what to look for and to call them out. That's why we're spending the time to really unpack what Jude is saying here because of how important this is, how destructive it is, and how we need to be on guard and on watching for these things. With that said, let us pick up in verse 8 this morning. Read verses 8 through 10, identifying apostates. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and, by, and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals by these things, they are destroyed. Let us pray. 
Father, as we've opened your holy word again this morning, the very God-breathed word, we see the importance of understanding and looking for apostates. Not that we are self-proclaimed heresy hunters turning over every leaf, but we should be very aware of false teaching, false teachers, false lay people who try to infiltrate the clear pronouncement of your word, try to undermine the gospel message, try to undermine the finished work of Jesus Christ, try to undermine the very faith for which has been handed down forever to the saints. God, let us have a spirit of discernment about us. Let us not ignore this clarion call to be on guard. And let us forevermore and first of all seek to serve and glorify you. And in so doing, these other things will be much more easily identified. God, at any place today that I might be a stumbling block to someone here, Lord, I pray that you would remove me, that your word would be spoken clearly and concisely despite this fallible man standing before these people giving that word. Father God, help us as we need you every second of every day. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jude 8. I know it seems kind of odd to just jump into this verse, these verses, but if you have not been with us the past couple of weeks, I would ask that you go back and listen to the messages leading up to it. I think it's very important as we walk through this letter to understand what has come before us and what is yet to come in front of us in this letter. In this opening verse, Jude uses an important transitory phrase. He uses the phrase, in the same way, these men, in the same way. Now, y'all know that I often point to those verses that, that hearken us back to what was just said or what is yet to come. Oftentimes we see the word therefore as that transitory phrase. Judas using the same kind of language here, transitory to pointing back to what he's just said. These men he's about to continue talking about are the ones he's talked about already and the ones that he's going to continue to talk about. So in the same way as what he just talked about, he's continuing on. It helps us show the importance of the previous passage it shows us the importance that these apostates were long beforehand marked out as apostates and their condemnation is preordained, preplanned, and it is certain. It is certain. As I've shown you many times in scripture, when God uses the past tense for something that is yet to happen, it's because of his sovereignty. And he says, it's going to happen. I can say it as if it has already happened because God is going to bring it to pass. In the previous verses, we looked at kind of the connection the certainty when he, when he made the, the connection to the Israelites in the wilderness and how that generation was not allowed to enter into the promised land except for a handful of the angels who abandoned their own domain and they took human form and, and uh, had relations with earthly women and created these abominations. And we looked at, lastly, the condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we looked pretty clearly last week at the fact that it was not, as some would try to say today, because of their inhospitality. That was true of them, but it was because of the sexual sin primarily in those cities. Now, coming to this section of scripture, John MacArthur makes an interesting comment here, and he labels these, these apostates here. He equates them to terrorist or terrorism. Uh, and I would agree with that, but I might go even a little further. And interesting that somebody was asking me about my prior service and being in the CVs and the combat that I saw and made me think this week as we were away uh, thinking about them as terrorists, and I think that's true, 
But if you know the history of, of warfare that, that our country's been involved in since Vietnam forward, primarily the enemies we have faced have not been standing armies. It's been a lot of guerrilla tactics, a lot of guerrilla warfare, a lot of we don't know who the enemy is until they start attacking us. That has been very true. Now, I know in the Gulf War there was a standing army that was maybe may as well have been made out of paper the way they were pushed through with the Republican Guard. But primarily, even when I was in Bosnia, the attack against us would come from people you didn't know they're your enemy until you were right there upon them and they attack you. Vietnam War was fought largely with tactics such as that. And every war since then, if you think about it, every skirmish we've been in has been very similar to that. You don't see standing army against standing army like you used to as much. So terrorism and these combatants that you don't know they're your enemy until the last minute is a very close connection to what has been going on here that Jude's talking about. You don't know they're the enemy until the last minute. Praise God, we are given examples of things to look for, though. Characteristics, uh, traits, ways to identify these individuals. So our discernment must be high. Hard to identify these kind of enemies until it's almost too late. Sometimes it is too late. We all remember 9-11. Something we were not expecting for sure. The attack on the Pentagon. The other plane that went down that we're not quite sure what was going to. Those brave men and women stood up on that plane and stopped that from happening when they knew what was going on. We must. That said, we must be diligent to identify apostates as soon as possible to mitigate the damage that could possibly happen. We need to be discerning. The Bible tells us about some of these individuals called angels of light. They masquerade as angels of light. The Bible tells us, Jesus tells us throughout scripture and the, the, the apostles tell us that they come in as wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. They purposely try to hide. They purposely try to blend in, much like terrorists or enemy combatants we face today. Yet he says, in the same way, in the same way, Jude tells us here, they do often show us certain characteristics to look for. There are identifying traits to look for. And he touches on some of them. Now, as you see this verse, if you've got a King James that you're reading out of today, you may see in the text here that it says filthy dreamers. Now, if you see filthy in your Bible in a King James, you probably see it in italics or bracketed. And that's for a reason. The reason being that that, that word is not in the original Greek that this letter was written in. It was kind of added later. Um, now, that's why you don't see it in the more recent uh, English translations that actually go back further than the King James did, but that's a different topic for a different day. It does fit into the characteristics of who they are, though. They are filthy dreamers, yet it's not in the original text. So just keep that in mind. When you see the bracketed and or italics in the Bible, those are, that's one of the characteristics of that. All the preceding verses, preceding verses speak to these men in conjunction, but also separate from their dreams. So there's another confusing language here when it talks about dreaming in general. There's really two ways that I think of looking at this. One way is that the, that that there is to consider that their defiling, rejection, and reviling as connected to their spiritual darkness. That it's as if they are spiritually asleep, and that their dreams, therefore, are the dreams of a dead man or a sleeping man. That's one way to think about this. I lean the other direction to the to the other one I'm about to give you. And I think it's more likely that this 
dreaming is their false assertion of prophetic dreams. That they claim to gain some extra knowledge or some additional knowledge or some new truth, as they might say sometimes, through visions and dreams. These may be actual dreams that we're going to see in a moment. They're going to be sent to them from deceitful spirits, demons and the such. Or they may just be dreams that they're reinterpreting themselves. They often use these as a catalyst for their false teaching, as I've already alluded to. And guys, this has been going on for as long as man's been on this earth. These deceptive thoughts, these deceptive dreams, these deceptive visions have been given to people for as long as we've been here. Now, it's very much still going on today. Very, very much still going on today. I want us to consider Colossians. Colossians 2.18 speaks of this as well. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So Paul speaks very clearly about these people who have these visions or these dreams and they try to turn around and teach others, God has shown me this and lead people astray. Sometimes they're self-deceived. Sometimes they know very, very well what they're doing is deceptive and deceitful. Satan loves to use that tactic as well. And so do his demons. It's interesting to note that, that that the normal word used for dreams in the New Testament Greek isn't the word used here by Jude. The, the normal word used is a very simple word, onan, O-N-A-N. Jude uses the word, the, a different word, a different verb. It's a long old word, so I'm not going to try to pronounce it. I'm not a Greek scholar. But it's only used one other place in Scripture. So y'all know me. That kind of peaked at my radar a little bit. Okay, where else is this used and why is it used there? Well, if you go to the book of Acts and you look specifically at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, this same word is used again. Acts 2, 16 and 17. And this is where Peter is referencing a prophecy by the prophet Joel. An obscure prophet somewhat. But here's what he says. But this is what was spoken of to the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophecy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So at Pentecost, Paul references back to Joel speaking of the end times and that these things will begin to happen again. During the tribulation time, we're going to see this full tilt, I believe. We'll see these revelatory dreams again, I believe, full tilt. Visions, prophecies. Peter mentions in that at at Pentecost that that's going to happen again. So drawing back to Peter's sermon and Joel's prophecy, the strong indication is this, that apostates will lay claim that they've been given these revelatory dreams already, and they can pull upon Joel, they can pull upon Peter's sermon and say, just like he said. But yet, it's false because one of the key characteristics to that, and you see it so much in the world today, is these people that want to give you new truth or new vision or God has shown me this, is 99% of the time it contradicts the written word of God and what God has said about himself. That is the number one marker that you can use to identify and dismiss it out of hand because so often they bring something that is not scriptural. It's not biblical. And we know God is immutable. He changes not. He's not changing what he's saying. The canon is closed. At the end times, these prophecies and dreams and visions, they're going to line up perfectly with scripture. He's not going to give new revelation. 
There will be revelation, though. It's not going to change anything about who he is and what he said and what he said is going to happen. We know the end from the beginning already. But they claim these revelatory dreams. As I've said already, what you see today and what you've seen for the last 2,000 years is these false teachers laying claims to these dreams and expanding upon them as new truths. That causes them to claim a false authority. Just as Jude says, they reject authority because they've got a new authority. God has given them something new and fresh, they will claim, so they can reject the authority of the Bible and so many other things because they have this new word and can pull people along with them. God has closed the canon at this time. There's no new truth coming right now. His word is finished. The work of Christ is finished. His word is sufficient. Christ's death and atoning work is sufficient. We don't need something new. We have the perfect, infallible, inerrant, perfect word. And the perfect, infallible Savior. And the perfect, infallible Holy Spirit who enjoys the believer. Why do you need something else? Why would you want something else? In the Old Testament, also, the dreamer, the word dreamer, is almost always used as a derisive term. It's synonymous with false teachers almost every single time. That's interesting. Moses in Deuteronomy gives us this. Moses in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he is consoled, counseled, I'm sorry, rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from among you. Just as God has bought you and purchased you with the precious blood of Christ today, why would you shun that and listen to this fake stuff being passed out? You catch what he said they, would do, they should do with them? Kill them. Now, if we were killing false teachers today, there probably wouldn't be as many of them around, but that makes me think again about the terrorists and these enemy combatants. Why are they so rigid? Why are they so determined? Because they don't fear the punishment because they're willing to do it to die for it. To kill and maim and destroy for it. There's no fear of the repercussions. Now, we looked at what Paul said in Colossians 2. We've looked at what Moses has, has gave us there. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we read this. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. He's telling Timothy in the last days, this will increase. It will ramp up. Just like everything else we see. This kind of goes to what we talked about in Genesis where the, the, the person in Genesis who ascribes to 
things getting better and or uh, the evolving cycle, and we've struck that down a week and a half ago, this world is not getting better. The, 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 the law of entropy is in full effect. It is breaking down. It's breaking down. He said, and this will get worse. The spiritual condition will get worse. Romans 1, read Romans 1 again. I know I reference it a lot. We're going to reference it before we close today. Big surprise. It is breaking down and it's getting worse. Praise God, we know how it's going to end. This physical world is breaking down, but the spiritual kingdom is growing. And God overcomes. I didn't put these verses up there, but I'll read the next couple of verses in, in 1 Timothy here in chapter 4. Speaking of these men... Men who forbid marriage and advocate advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. That speaks to a group of people that I'm not going to reference but you probably know who I'm talking about. Back to Jude 8. In much the same way these apostates show themselves. They show themselves to be immoral is one of the things Jude lays out here. Immoral. It says they defile the flesh. Now, we use the word flesh a couple of ways in the New Testament. One way we use it is the nature, our fleshly nature, our sinful nature. We know that battle is real between the spirit and the flesh. Here, a different word is used, and it's a word that speaks primarily to the physical body. So, when, you, when thinking about this, he's talking about the physical body. He says defile the flesh. Now, the word defile here in the original language, means to stain or to dye, D-Y-E something, like you would dye a garment, change the color of it, to stain it, to defile it, to dye it. It can also be used as polluting, contaminate to soil. So considering using that word for defile and the physical flesh itself, the connotation is almost always used in the original language to speak to sexual sin, defiling the flesh, sexual sin. So these immoral apostates defile the flesh, committing sexual sin. Now, apostate teachers are, are, are not always, but almost always, led into some kind of sexual immorality. We hear about it on the news all the time, right? Some Christian leader who has done something sexually immoral, we hear about it consistently. But it may not always be public. It could be those hidden sins. The addiction to pornography or, or going to strip clubs or whatever. Those kind of things. And it's not just speaking of homosexuality, although that is a big part of this as well. Just like certain churches and denominations have gone wholesale apostate in my mind because of their involvement and acceptance of so many of these things. We talked about that last week. When we think about this, there's much that the word tells us in regards to sexual immorality and for us to re restrain ourselves, to refrain from it, the influence it can have in our lives and our marriages and in our leadership abilities. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel and sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. He's saying, Christian, you are not to defile yourself. That you're not to pursue these lustful pulls upon you. He's not saying you won't have them. He's saying you're to refrain from them. You need to fight against them. 
people often ask, what is the will of God? We can do a whole series on that, but we have one example of it right there. Does it not tell us that? The will of God is for your sanctification. You to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You to grow and mature spiritually. Brother, that, I don't really want to know about who I'm supposed to marry and how I'm supposed to do this and how I'm supposed to do that. You grow in God's word. You seek his faith. You pray. And as God grows you and matures you, those things will become more and more evident to you in your life. We're looking for the fast track. We're looking for the, the shortcut. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to him and his authority. I was trying to figure out where in this message I would throw this in, but I'm going to throw it in now, I guess. One of the statements I hate, and maybe some of you have used it, I've probably used it before in my life. Make Jesus Lord of your life. What a ridiculous statement. It really is. Jesus is Lord of your life. You don't make him anything. Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is Master. You might not acknowledge it. You don't make him that. You don't have that power. And neither do I. Do you acknowledge him as Lord? Now, that's a different topic. You don't make him Lord. He's God. Now, those who know God are to abstain from such things as these fleshly desires. You may be a, it may be a fight that you fight every second of your life. But you will have no desire to fight that fight unless you've been born again. If you've been born again and that fight is real in your life, you should just take great comfort that God has done a work in you, that you know that you're to abstain from those things. The fight is real, though. And for some, it may be stronger. For others, it might be a fight that you have no connection to whatsoever. But the fight is real. But the apostates, they give in. There's, there's no fight there because they're not spiritually reborn. They're not born again. <clears throat> Later in this letter, and the reason I say that, you say, Brother, you haven't said that yet. Well, Jude does in 19. These are the ones who cause divisions. Worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Y'all catch that. These apostates do not have the Spirit. They don't have this battle. They give in to it. There's no battle there. Back to verse 8. They also reject authority. They reject authority. They're insubordinate. I thought of three ways that really jump out to me that an apostate, false teacher, or just a false layperson. I keep saying teacher. This does not have to be your Sunday school teacher or a Wednesday night Bible study teacher. This could just be somebody who's trying to exercise influence on the body of the church. Three ways they reject authority in my mind. One is the authority of the local church. The elders and the pastor put, a, put in charge by the Lord Jesus Christ to shepherd the church. They reject his authority and or a plurality of elders. They reject the elders' authority. That's one way. Number two, the sound teaching of Scripture itself. This is the authority we carry around with us. This is the authority we have, what you do and do not do, how far you go, what the church is supposed to be structured like. What worship is supposed to look like. It's all in God's word. They reject that authority because they've got a new revelation. The third and most important that connects all of them is they reject, they ultimately reject Jesus Christ as Lord and King. Remember what I said earlier that we don't make him anything? Well, they reject him. They do the complete opposite. They reject him as Lord and King because they've been given a new revelation. That's dangerous ground, church. Remember back in Jude 4 when he says certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before him marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and do what? Deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
He doesn't say, and they don't allow him to be Lord. He says they deny him as Lord. I read Colossians 2 already, but I want to give you the next verse. Not quite like Paul Harvey and the rest of the story, but I want to give you the next verse. Colossians 2, 18 and 19. We read 18 already. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Verse 19. And not holding fast to the head, from which the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Who is the head of the church? Christ Jesus is head of the church. Rejecting that authority. Rejecting his authority. He goes on in the rest of that chapter talking about that. Saying if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees? Such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He goes on and on about putting on the new self and about how the spirit indwells you. So actually these apostates, these are trying to bring destructive doctrines and teachings they could be connected pretty closely to what Jesus says multiple times to the scribes and the Pharisees. He talks about the outward appearance and the self-righteousness and even fooling people around you. In Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28, one of the places where he lays out these woes upon them, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I remember I did a study one time on the word hypocrites in the New Testament in the Greek. And it's actually the word that in ancient Greek plays and theaters and stuff where they would have the little mask and they put them up in front of themselves. That's what hypocrite or hypocrisy literally means. To mask, to hide something behind you. So these people are just hiding what's really behind them. And Jesus calls them out on it. You're whitewashed tombs. You're full of dead men's bones. It looks good on the outside. Remember these guys were standing on the corners with their prayer boxes attached to them. Praying their prayers as loud as they could so they would hear them and think these must be the most pious people around. Remember the hypocrite that goes in, or the, the Pharisee that goes into the temple and he sees the man they're pounding his chest. Lord, forgive me, forgive me. And what does he say? I'm glad I'm not like this guy. There's a brokenness in Christianity. There's a brokenness in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an understanding that you need him as Savior. You don't make him anything. He is Lord. Now, it also tells us here in verse 8 that they revile angelic majesties. You see something a little different in other translations. I know that. But the word, we'll get to that. The word revile is from the Greek word we know, and we get the word to blaspheme. To blaspheme, which literally means to slander or speak evil of. We know blasphemy against God is to speak blasphemy against who he is and his character and his nature. And what and, and ascribe Jesus is a good example when he did these things and they said, that comes from Satan. A house divided cannot stand. Why would I do something that would go against that house. So primarily speaking, here it means profaning sacred things, especially God himself. This, just, just, this doesn't mean just irrelevant or irreverent or indifferent, but actually to blaspheme against the sacred things, to speak against what the word says, to speak against the Lord, to speak against God. 
Now, King James and some other translations use the word uh, dignitaries. They don't use the word angelic there at all. So you might think, well, there's some confusion there on my part because this doesn't really line up with what my Bible says. Well, in the original language, the phrase used there is doxa, a short little phrase, and it literally means glory. Oftentimes in the New Testament, it's used to speak to God's majesty. So his majesty in authority, his majesty in angelic host, his majesty in dignitaries, his majesty. So thinking about authority and blaspheming majesty, it kind of makes sense now in how it connects. Now, we also have a reasoning for the NASB using angelic when we look at some parallel places. 2 Peter 2.10 is one such place. 2 Peter 2.10, and I already told you I'd to keep 2 Peter bookmarked as we go through Jude. 2 Peter 2.10 says this, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. So there's the connection. Also, the next verse we're about to look at, we see what, the, what Jude's about to use, speaking of Michael the archangel, and we see the connection of how it flows from, from 8 to 9. Later on in Second Peter, he speaks specifically of the angels blaspheming, the fallen angels as they were. So let's move to the confusing verse. If that wasn't confusing enough, Jude 9. Because if you're even a rough student of the word, you read verse 9 and you're like, brother, I don't remember reading that anywhere in the Old Testament. I've never seen that before. Well, that's because you won't find it in the Old Testament. You won't find it anywhere else in Scripture but right here. Jude 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued with about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against my ruling judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Then immediately Jude goes to something else. He didn't even spend time elaborating on what he's talking about there. We have this one verse dropped in this epistle that's kind of off the beaten path for a lot of people. What is he talking about? Before I say that, I'll say this. The important thing here is how Michael handles the authority that he's been given and what he does with it. Amen. Now I'll come back to that. Michael understood God could and will grant him that power over Satan. If you know the book of Revelation, you know that power is given to him. But he understood his place and his purpose at that time and not to go beyond his limits. The limits that God had given to him at that time. He simply said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Now I'm going to take you to another obscure portion of scripture. And actually a book that somebody actually sent me an email about this week. They were reading in this book. Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. I think it's the second to the last book in the Old Testament, so it's not too hard to find if you want to go back and read it later. Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, out of context, I know that's hard for y'all to follow what's going on there. He's been given a vision. And when we see the angel of the Lord before Jesus came, it's usually pointing to a pre-incarnate Christ. I shared with y'all last week that Satan still to this day is making accusations to the breath, about the brethren to God. He's not been kicked completely out. He still has that access. Joshua, the high priest, he's been brought in to witness what is going on here. This vision shows Zechariah 
about proper authority, proper, or no abuse of authority, but proper authority and how it's used. Satan argued that God should revoke his promises to the covenant people because of their sinfulness. That's what he's accusing them of. They're sinful. Just do away with what you promised you were going to do to them. Do away with it. Stop it. You should, and as I told y'all last week, when Satan accuses us of things that we've done, he doesn't have to make up any lies about us, does he? He has plenty of ammunition to take and say, look at what Marty did. Look at what Greg did. God, you've promised this person? Yeah, he has. If you're his. If you're his. Now, again, that's not to present antinomianism and throw law out the window so that grace would abound even more. Paul speaks against that. That is not so grace would abound even more because you know the Lord, you will seek to serve him and love him. Let's read on in Zechariah 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. You get what's going on there, a picture of? Yes, we're dressed in filthy rags. Yes, we're dressed in filthy garments. But God will make you clean. God will make you pure. Now, I still haven't explained what's going on in Jude, have I? <clears throat> Michael knew where his authority was. Michael knew what judgment he could give based on what the God had promised to him. Now, this section can be quite confusing. I, I'll admit that. As I said, it's not found anywhere in Scripture. What do we know about Moses' death? I know this was a kind of a, I think, a trivia question I put in the bulletin a couple of weeks ago. A trick question. Where Moses' body was buried. Most people think, well, we don't know. Well, Deuteronomy 34, 5, and 6. Here's all we have about Moses' death and burial. Besides what we just read in Jude. Deuteronomy 34, 5, and 6. The last chapter of the five books of Moses, as they're often called. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place. To this day. And that's it. This man that God used so mightily, so powerfully through these five books, his death is captured in two verses. And his burial is in this valley, but nobody knows where. Some translations, you'll see that second part, it says that he is capitalized. I lost my place. Was that verse up there? Those verses? Okay, that's why I was looking at me like they were confused. Deuteronomy 34, 5, and 6, it says it, trust me. The context in the NASB has he capitalized as God buried Moses. God dealt with his body. How else would no man know where it was unless God himself did it? Otherwise, one man would know whoever buried him. Now, why? Well, we have pictures of it. God didn't want Moses' body defiled nor did he want Satan to take the body and lift it up as something for them to worship. Can you imagine the people worshiping the body of Moses? I mean, they worship the golden calf. They're going to worship Moses. And if, if Satan could do something with his body, they definitely would worship that. Now, what it says there in Jude is that Michael fought or disputed with the devil about the body. 
So we know Satan wanted the body. Again, I still haven't told you where this comes from, have I? Where does this comment come from? It doesn't line up with what Deuteronomy tells us. It doesn't contradict it, but it doesn't tell us either. Well, there's evidence that this account is paralleled in an apocryphal Jewish book called The Assumption of Moses. The Jewish historians would have known about it. Much of the Jewish people would have known about it. They would have known this story. Now, it's not the canon of Scripture, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Let me, let me, make, let me clear that up a minute. Nothing that's not in Scripture can be held up to equal status, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Okay? We have fragments of these books. We don't have the totality of these books, and they're not God-inspired. It's just a historical account of what happened. Okay? Jude uses another one before we close this letter out, too, that'll make you be like, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture either. It's what causes some confusion with Jude, or one of the reasons. Yet the readers would have known, apparently, because he does not elaborate on it at all. They would have understood this story. They would have known this story and heard this story. Jude uses it as fact in this epistle. It looks factual to me. Jude uses it. This is this happened, even though we don't have it in the canon of Scripture. The point of this verse, though, which I said when we started, is to understand the role of authority and what actual authority is versus taking authority or abuse of authority. Michael understood where his authority was. It was from God. He said, the Lord will rebuke you. The time has not yet come for him to bind him. That's what I want you to take away from that. And verse 10, by these men, but these men revile the things which they do not understand. You know where we're going next, don't you? By these, but these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. They're destroyed. But these men, this helps to undergird this teaching you've been doing this whole time. These things, where is these things? These spiritual things, the authority of things, True authority. Again, I'll take you to 2 Peter. Parallel passages here. 2 Peter 2, 10. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring self-will, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesty. We've already seen that verse. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power than these apostates do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revel, to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. So he's saying, they're not spiritual. They're like the beast of the field. They're like filthy animals. They cannot discern properly what the word of God says. That's why they have to lean to these other things. They have no authority. They try to take authority that even angels say they don't have. These are signs of apostates. I saw a quote posted by somebody here that, that um, I've seen before. Uh, I have just kind of brought it back to my mind again yesterday or today. It's a post of Bodie Bauckham. And he makes a comment about those churches that can bind Satan. He says, if, if that church over there can bind, I'm paraphrasing a bit. If that church over there can bind Satan, I'm just going to say, why don't y'all keep him bound over there instead of letting him loose again? So keep him out of our service. If y'all can bind him, you just hold him over there. That's revealing, reviling authority. These men, it says, despise what they do not know. If they're not spiritual, if they're not born again, they cannot know what the word says. 
They can read the words on a page. The Spirit brings understanding. Jesus even told his apostles that, or disciples that, did he not? Once I leave, these things will make sense to you. The Spirit illuminates. The Spirit gives you understanding. I remember as a child looking at a family Bible we had on the table and reading it and just being captured by certain parts of Scripture, Revelation specifically. I'm just reading it as a storybook, though. God hadn't shown me the spiritual application and implication of what it was until I was born again. Many of y'all are nodding your head because you have the exact same experience. These men even despise what they do not know. They turn to what they do know. If you don't know this, you're going to turn to what you're familiar with, are you not? You're going to turn to what you're, you know and you're comfortable with. By this, it says they teach falsely, they revile, they accuse, they despise authority. That's one of the telltale signs, despising authority. Just like a teacher should be teachable, able to learn, that teacher that cannot is not willing to sit under clear learning, they don't need to be a teacher to begin with, whether they're apostate or not. They do not soundly interpret. They can't. They cannot interpret because they're not spiritual. They turn to their natural instincts. They do that by instinct, just as dumb, unreasoning animals do. Animals don't reason. They act on their instincts. And he's saying these people are the same way. Just as the unregenerate person. Why does that person do that, you might think? Why are they going so... They're unreasoning animals. They're not spiritual. They're following their nature. Romans 1, made it all the way to the end before we hit it. Romans 1, verse 22, short, concise verse. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Is that not the world we live in today? Professing to be wise, they became fools. Jesus dealing with these. What does he say often? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. But Lord, Lord, we did this and we did that. No, you didn't. You didn't do it for me. You did it for yourself. You were following your own instinct. Church, be on the lookout for this. It brings glory to the Lord whenever you see these things. Be discerning. Love the Lord. Follow him. Commit yourself to him and these things will become more and more evident to you. Now be careful before you make a false accusation though. Let me, let me make sure I put that Asterisk in there. Be careful before you make a false accusation. I told you all many times, if I say something from the pulpit or on a Wednesday night or what have you, you're like, man, I don't, that doesn't, I don't really know about that. Come to me. Let's talk about it. But you better bring scripture. That's my authority. That better be yours. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you. As being spiritual, we know that our authority comes from you comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. It comes from your word without which we would be a ship without a rudder without an anchor. Lord God, let us renew our submission to you. Let us remember that we are citizens of your kingdom and our king is the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, if there's somebody here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I ask and I make no emotional plea on the individual here today. Lord, I don't have that power. I can save no one. Salvation is of you. 
But God, I do. I will beg of them. I will plead of man to come to you. And Lord, I will ask you humbly to save those lost sinners that you are calling to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.